Loretta Webb was born a coal miner's daughter in a cabin on a hill in Butcher Hollow on April 14, 1935. Her father, Melvin Webb, called Ted by his friends, worked third shift in the nearby Van Leer coal mines and tried farming corn on their land during the day. Loretta was one of seven children, so her mother, Clary, had her hands full, but always found time at night to read the Bible to them by a coal-fueled light. The Webbs were a musical family, as it seemed were most folks in Butcher Hollow. Loretta confesses she didn't know there were people who couldn't sing until she moved away. She grew up singing old folk songs during the week and church songs on Sunday. Loretta attended a one-room schoolhouse not far from her family's cabin, and one day in 1948, the school had a fundraiser. There were games, a beauty pageant, and a pie social. Now, a pie social is an auction, with the high bidder for each pie not only getting the pie, but also the chance to see the girl who cooked it back to her home. Loretta won the beauty contest that year, and her pie sold to 21-year-old miner and World War II veteran Oliver Lynn. Oliver was just five foot five, so Loretta called him Doolittle, or Do for short. Just one month after the pie social, 13-year-old Loretta Webb married Oliver and became, of course, Loretta Lynn. Mining didn't suit her new husband, so soon thereafter they moved to Indiana, and then on to Custer, Washington. In Custer, Dew got work as a logger, and Loretta worked in a drugstore. They would have six children together, the first four born before Loretta turned 21. Dew loved Loretta's voice, and one day came home with a $17 harmony guitar he bought from Sears. She taught herself to play, and started writing songs. She wrote about what she knew, which was a hard life during hard times. Nobody ever told her that people in those days didn't sing songs about things like that. Her songs were real and heartfelt, and when she started singing around town, they really struck a chord with people. One night, she was performing in a nightclub across the border in Vancouver, and some of the executives from Tiny Zero Records were there. They liked what they heard and soon recorded her favorite song, I'm a Honky Tonk Girl. They pressed the record, and Loretta and Dew set off across America in his old Mercury sedan, stopping by every radio station they could find and trying to get the record played on the air. Somehow, it worked, and by 1960, I'm a Honky Tonk Girl was on the charts. She debuted at the Grand Ole Opry later that year, and soon signed with Decca Records. Her first Decca single, aptly named Success, hit the charts in 1962, and would be the first of 51 top 10 hits for Loretta Lynn. She was definitely on her way. In 1970, Lynn released her most popular and best-known song, the autobiographical Coal Miner's Daughter. The song would reach number one on the charts, and the title would be used in her autobiography and its movie adaptation. While this, like most of her songs, was unapologetically honest, it was also introspective and deeply personal. So personal, in fact, that it's rarely been covered. Of the song, Loretta once said, quote, I didn't think anybody'd be interested in my life, 
I know everybody's got a life, and they all have something to say. Everybody has a story about their life. It wasn't just me. I guess I was just the one that told it, end quote. Coal Miner's daughter didn't just tell the story of Loretta Lynn's life. It told the story of Appalachia, and it told it in a way few had heard before. It's no wonder that the song remains popular today, almost 50 years after it was released. Loretta Lynn went on to unchartered levels of stardom for a woman in country music. In 1972, she was voted the Country Music Association's Entertainer of the Year, the first woman to win this honor. Several years later, she was named the Academy of Country Music's Artist of the Decade, as yet the only woman to win that award. She received Kennedy Center honors in 2003 and the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2013. But it is still that song which we remember most about Loretta Lynn. It's that song which told us the story of a poor kid who grew up in a small cabin in the backwoods of Kentucky. It's that song which reminds us that no matter how far you go in life, you should always remember where you came from. It even tells us what it was like to go back. Well, a lot of things have changed since way back then, and it's so good to be back home again. Not much left but the floor. Nothing lives here anymore, except the memory of a coal miner's daughter. I've traveled the country over, stopped and eaten Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of American Anthology. This is your host, Mike Harding, and it is great to be back with you today. Since last we met, I've been traveling across the south of Kentucky. From Paducah in the far west, I dropped down to the lovely Land Between the Lakes National Recreation Area, where I turned another year older and completed another 584 million mile journey around the sun. From there, I headed out to Bowling Green, where every Corvette in the world is made. I visited Mammoth Cave, the largest known cave system in the world, and then headed off to Lake Cumberland, Cumberland Falls, and Big South Fork, where I rode the historic railway into the gorge. Then it was up to Berea, back through Lexington, and off to the east, where I caught up with family and spent some time in the lovely Kentucky State Parks. Red River Gorge was magnificent in fall colors, as was Kentucky's corner of Appalachia. I finished off my visit to the Bluegrass State in coal country, part of the state not to be overlooked. If you want to see photos from my journey or learn more about me and the places I go, check out my website, www.milestogobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles, the number two, GoBeforeISleep.com. I'm on Facebook, on Twitter at MilesToGoTweet, and on Instagram at MilesToGoBeforeISleep, all using the number two for me and you. Along the way, I stopped into the legendary Renfro Valley and recorded the music for this show at their weekly barn dance. Their featured band when I was there was West Mills and Smokehouse, and they put on a heck of a show. To find out more, be sure you check out their website, RenfroValley.com. Renfro Valley, 
www.thepeopleshow.com. Let's get right to the stories you've come here to listen to. Grab a warm drink and a comfortable seat, lean back, relax, and let me take you on a journey through the mountains, caves, and city streets of Southern Kentucky. Have you ever heard the old joke about who's buried in Grant's tomb? If I were to take some liberty with that and ask who's buried in Daniel Boone's tomb, it wouldn't be a joke. A mystery, perhaps, but definitely not a joke. Daniel Boone was born into a Quaker family in the colony of Pennsylvania in 1734. His people, like so many others, had come to William Penn's colony in the New World because of his promise of religious freedom. In fact, just four miles from where Daniel was born, another Quaker lived named Mordecai Lincoln, the great-great-grandfather of another famous Kentuckian. Daniel never had any formal schooling, but could read and write to some degree. He got his first rifle when he was 12 and was soon making regular contributions to the family dinner pot. Soon after that, he was hunting enough to contribute to their income as well. He went on a long hunt as a teenager and brought the hides in to sell in Philadelphia. With the hides sold, Boone and his friend Henry Miller went on a three-week, quote, general jamboree or frolic and spent all the money they had made. Miller decided that sort of life was not for him, but Daniel Boone decided the opposite. The Boone family moved to North Carolina around 1750, and there Daniel joined the militia. He served in the French and Indian War, during which he met an old trader named John Findlay. Findlay regaled Boone with stories of the land over the mountains called Kentuck, a land of unparalleled beauty and abundant game and resources. Boone served under the command of Captain Hugh Waddell, whose third great-grandson was Alfred Moore Waddell, who you may recall from episode five of this podcast, led the only successful coup d'etat in American history. After the war, Boone married Rebecca Bryan, with whom he would have 10 children. He worked as a market hunter and would often be gone for months at a time. In 1767, he and his brother took their first trip through the Cumberland Gap, a route they did not discover, but would help turn into one of the most famous westward migration routes in early American history. In 1769, Boone returned to Kentucky. While he was out hunting, he was captured by the Shawnee, who told him to leave and not return. He didn't listen and kept right on hunting. He stayed in Kentucky that time for almost two years. In 1773, Boone and his family and 50 others set out with the plan to settle on the land across the mountains. On this trip, their eldest son James was brutally killed by the Indians, and the Boones turned back to North Carolina. In 1775, Daniel Boone led another party, determined to mark the trail through the mountains, which would later be called the Wilderness Road. 
They pushed all the way to the Kentucky River and built a fort and a settlement, which would be called Boonesboro. It was one of the first English-speaking communities west of the Appalachians. Boone would soon bring his family to join him. With the outbreak of the American Revolution, the Indians saw an opportunity to push the frontier back across the mountains, through violence if necessary. They succeeded, and only a few families remained, the Boones included. On July 5, 1776, just a day after the Declaration of Independence was signed, the Boones' daughter Jemima and two friends were kidnapped by the Shawnee. Daniel Boone set off after them and overtook them, rescuing the girls. This episode would be immortalized in a fictional recreation in James Fenimore Cooper's famous book, Last of the Mohicans. The following year, it was Boone himself who was captured by the Shawnee. He somehow convinced them to let him live, and he lived amongst them for many months, becoming a favorite of the chief Blackfish. When Boone learned they planned to attack Boonesboro, he escaped, fled home, and led a successful preemptive offensive strike instead. While he was with the Shawnee, his wife thought he had been killed, so they returned to North Carolina. When Daniel Boone went to bring them back, a large group came with them, including, as legend has it, Abraham Lincoln's grandfather, also named Abraham Lincoln. In 1780, Boone was elected for the first of three times to serve on the Virginia General Assembly, as Kentucky was still a part of Virginia at the time. While on his way to Richmond to take office, he was captured by Colonel Bannister Tarleton, who you may remember from episode six of this podcast. I'm sure when he captured Boone, he was still upset at losing Francis Marion, the elusive swamp box in the Carolinas. Boone was eventually paroled and, after serving his term, returned to Kentucky and his life on the frontier. When Daniel Boone was 50, historian John Filson published a book about the settlement of Kentucky, which included several stories about Boone's exploits. Thus, he became a legend, even in his own time. In his later years, Boone would work as a tavern keeper, a surveyor, a horse trader, and he also ran a trading post. In 1795, after Kentucky became a state, he ran into legal problems over several of his land claims. He decided to leave the United States for good. He packed up his family and they moved to Missouri, then a part of Spanish Louisiana, where he lived for the rest of his life. Boone spent most of his later years hunting and trapping on the frontier, Although he held several government positions after the United States purchased Missouri with the rest of Louisiana in 1803. Daniel Boone died September 26, 1820, just shy of his 86th birthday. He was buried next to his wife in an unmarked grave in Missouri. Years later, tombstones were placed in the general vicinity of their graves. Then, in 1845, a new cemetery opened in Frankfort, Kentucky, and they decided they needed a celebrity burial to help sell plots. The celebrity they chose was none other than Daniel Boone. They went to Missouri and dug up Daniel and his wife and reinterred them high on a hill overlooking the state capitol and the Kentucky River. Or did they? 
As I mentioned earlier, their tombstones weren't placed until years after their deaths and may have not been put in the exact right spot. Plus, lots of people were buried in that cemetery over the years. It has remained a mystery for many years, and we may never know the truth about who's actually buried in Daniel Boone's grave. What we do know is that Boone was a pioneer, a frontiersman, a soldier, a hunter, a representative of his people, and the first American legend west of the Appalachians. Berea College was founded in 1855 as the first co-ed integrated university south of the Mason-Dixon line. The founder was a man named John Fee, who believed firmly in equality and excellence in education for men and women of all races. He started with a one-room schoolhouse on land donated by abolitionist Cassius Marcellus Clay, who, as we know from our last episode, was the namesake for the man later known as Muhammad Ali. Teachers were recruited from Oberlin in Ohio, and Fee developed a constitution in a way that would ensure the school's interracial status. Fee put his students to work, which helped with their expenses, and he felt dignified manual labor in their eyes. He gave his school, and the town that would grow up around it, the name Berea, a biblical town whose population was open-minded and receptive to the Bible. In 1859, perhaps in response to fears brought on by John Brown's raid in Harper's Ferry, a group of pro-slavery sympathizers rode into Berea and shut the college down. They gave everyone there just 10 days to leave the state. Fee spent the Civil War years raising funds, and when the war ended, reopened his school. In 1865, Berea enrolled 187 students. 96 were black and 91 were white. The following year, the school was incorporated and in 1873, it conferred its first 18 bachelor's degrees. Things went well for Berea for the next 40 years as it quietly educated young people in its little enclave on the doorsteps of Appalachia. In 1903, Berea graduated perhaps its most famous student, Carter G. Woodson, who was the first to push for people to learn African-American history and started Black History Week, which later expanded to Black History Month. Yes, things were going well in Berea. The following year, that all changed as everything Berea had always stood for came crashing down. In 1904, Carl Day, a Democratic lawmaker from Breathitt County, got off the train in Berea and saw something which shocked and offended him. There before his very eyes, he saw a black person and a white person hugging and determined to put an end to this mixing of races at Berea. Shortly thereafter, he introduced House Bill 25, titled, An Act to Prohibit White and Colored Persons from Attending the Same School. He introduced the bill for, quote, preventing the contamination of the white children of Kentucky, end quote. 
He further stated that he believed the bill would prevent racial violence and interracial marriage. Now, at the time, Kentucky's public schools were segregated by law, but Berea was a private school and attendance was voluntary. Students knew and accepted its integrated nature. It should also be noted that Berea was the only integrated college in Kentucky at the time, so this law was specifically directed at them. The House Committee met in private with Berea citizens and businessmen who thought the day law, as it would come to be called, was a good idea. I find this fascinating since Berea, as an integrated school, predated the community. Next, they heard from Berea's then-president, William Frost, and his wife, Eleanor. They tried to argue that interracial education was not new and that they had not had any problems in the four decades the school had been open and integrated. While the act was being considered, supporters held a mass public demonstration at the courthouse in nearby Richmond. They proclaimed that at Berea, black students were being taught that they were the social equals of whites. Speaking against the bill, black Berea alumnus James White, a local lawyer and teacher, came to the defense of his alma mater. He tried to assure the crowd that they were not taught to be socially equal, just to be accustomed to each other as fellow human beings. His argument fell on deaf ears, and by a vote of 73 to 5 in the Kentucky House and 28 to 5 in the Senate, the day law was passed and took effect in July 1904. Usually, when we speak of school segregation, it was integration which was forced by law. In a tragic twist in this instance, an integrated school was instead forced by the law to segregate. If they refused, they would be fined $1,000 per student, and then an additional $100 a day they were non-compliant. The case was immediately appealed, but the appeals court upheld the law, and it would then go all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. On November 9, 1908, in the case of Berea College versus the state of Kentucky, the day law was once again upheld. The court argued that since Berea was chartered under Kentucky law, it was within the rights of the state to subject it to a segregation policy. It further cited the 1898 separate but equal argument from Plessy versus Ferguson, stating they weren't stopping separate schools from being established. In a contradiction I have come to expect from my time in Kentucky, the lone dissenter in the case was Supreme Court Justice and native Kentuckian John Marshall Harlan. Harlan had also written the dissent in Plessy v. Ferguson. A native of Danville, Kentucky, Harlan served on the court from 1877 until his death in 1933. He is buried where much of my family is buried in Rock Creek Cemetery in my hometown of Washington, D.C. In his dissent, he stated that the day law was unconstitutional because it violated the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. Regardless, the law was upheld and for the first time in its history, Berea became a school for whites only. Intent on continuing to educate black students, Berea accepted a $200,000 grant from Andrew Carnegie and opened Lincoln Institute in Shelby County in 1912. The Day Law would affect Berea College all the way until 1954, 
when Brown versus the Board of Education reintegrated the school. Today, Berea College is an inspirational place to visit. Its student population of 1,600 is made up of Americans of all different backgrounds and ethnicities, as well as students from dozens of countries around the world. While it is highly selective, all students who are accepted will attend tuition-free. Berea still seeks to dignify labor, so all students are expected to work. Study abroad programs are encouraged, and every attempt is made to help fund these endeavors. I've also been told that all students are expected to learn how to swim before they can graduate. On-campus housing is provided for all students, and while it is separated by gender, accommodations are made for those who don't identify in traditional ways. Berea College seemed very utopian to me during my visit, and I felt it was truly striving to live up to its motto, taken from the Book of Acts. God has made of one blood all peoples of the earth. You may have never heard the name Floyd Collins, but if your great-great-grandparents were from the United States, they'd know the story well. It may have been the biggest non-political story of the first quarter of the 20th century. The entire nation was on edge, waiting to hear the fate of the man trapped 60 feet below the ground somewhere in central Kentucky. Floyd Collins grew up four miles from Mammoth Cave, which, with 400 miles of passageways, is the largest known cave system in the world. When Floyd was growing up in the 1880s and 90s, it was already a famous tourist attraction, and people came from near and far to explore the cave. Floyd practically grew up in Mammoth Cave, and was already exploring on his own when he was just six years old. He could often be found hanging around the Mammoth Cave Hotel, trying to sell trinkets to tourists he had found underground. When he was 10, Floyd dropped out of school to pursue cave exploration and guiding full-time. At 14 in 1901, he was being paid $2 a day to guide a geologist from New York through the long, dark passages under central Kentucky. It was often said that Floyd knew those caves as well as anyone. In 1917, he discovered a new cave on his family's property and named it Crystal Cave. He tried to capitalize on this find by siphoning off some of the tourists headed for nearby Mammoth Cave. Unfortunately, Crystal Cave was only accessible by going down a rutted, rough road, and Floyd's neighbors were likely to convince people that other caves were easier to get to and more spectacular. Competition for tourist dollars was fierce and often turned violent. This period is sometimes referred to as the Kentucky Cave Wars. Floyd knew that if he wanted to be successful, he needed to find a new entrance to Mammoth Cave that was closer to the main road. It was with that in mind that he dropped casually and confidently into the small entrance of what would later be called Sand Cave. 
It was January 30, 1925, and the then 37-year-old explorer had been clearing debris out of this cave for weeks. He had managed to penetrate over 100 feet in and was hopeful this would be his big break. He carried a rope and a kerosene lamp with him as he made his way into the cave. The first 50 feet were relatively easy, but then it got tight. Floyd had been doing this his whole life, though. He relaxed, exhaled deeply, and, using just his toes, pushed through the squeeze. He made it through and continued deeper into the cave. Then he came to a narrow passage we'll call the drop, which went down 10 feet diagonally and ended in a coffin-sized chamber. Beyond the drop and the chamber, he slithered through a crack and dropped into a massive room, using the rope to rappel down the wall. At this point, his lamp started to flicker, so he turned around. He climbed back up the wall and through the crack. He lay on his back with his arms by his sides and used his heels to push him through the narrow chamber. It was there and then that his light died and he was plunged into darkness. Not at all panicked, he braced his foot on the cave wall and pushed off. Suddenly, the wall gave way and a heavy rock landed on his left foot. Instinctively, he kicked out with his free foot and dislodged a half ton of rubble onto his lower body. Covered to his waist in rock, with his arms pinned to his sides in total darkness, 60 feet below the surface and unable to move, it was then that Floyd Collins started to scream. He screamed until his voice gave out, but there was no one who would hear him. He was often gone exploring for days at a time, so it wouldn't be until the next day that anyone would even realize he was missing. So there he lay, trapped in the pitch black cave for 25 long hours. Day two, Saturday afternoon, a teenager named Jewel Estes thought he heard something or someone in Sand Cave. He made his way in and called down into the darkness. Floyd called out to him for help, and Estes retreated to find some. Several people came to Sand Cave, but none could get through the tight squeezes to help. Later that afternoon, Floyd's younger brother, Homer, came home, and when he heard what happened, immediately went into the cave. When he got to the drop, he realized this was going to be a problem. If he went down the drop headfirst, you would have to slowly come back up feet first for 30 feet before you could turn around. If you went in feet first, it was easier to get out, but you couldn't do much because it was too narrow. Homer went down head first and gave Floyd some food and drink. He tried to clear some of the debris, but new rocks just fell in his place. He made his way out of the cave and rested for a bit then took a crowbar down and spent the next eight hours slowly and deliberately clearing debris. When he emerged the next morning, he found a hundred men at the cave entrance trying to come up with a plan. Day three, several other men tried to go in to help, but none could get up the nerve to get through the tight spaces. Homer went back in and continued to work as long as his energy held out. Day four, Monday, February 2nd. 
Floyd Collins had been trapped for 70 hours. Word had gotten out, and 21-year-old Louisville Journal Courier reporter William B. Miller arrived on the scene. He found Homer resting and warming up by the fire and tried to get him to talk. Homer told him if he wanted a story, he had to go in and get it. William Miller was a very small and wiry man, so much so that his friends likened him to a mosquito, calling him Skeets for short. Skeets put on some coveralls and went straight into the cave. Not without trepidation, he wiggled all the way down to where Floyd was trapped. Skeets tried asking Floyd some questions, but the trapped man was incoherent. When he emerged, Skeets certainly had the inside scoop on the rescue. He could attest from personal experience that Floyd must be a hell of a caver to get down there in the first place, and also how difficult it was going to be to get him out. Later that day, Louisville firefighter Robert Burden arrived to help and also made it down to Floyd. He took a long rope down and tied it around Floyd's chest. Dozens of men tried to pull him free. He didn't budge an inch. Finally, a fourth and final rescuer arrived on the scene, Floyd Collins' childhood friend and fellow cave explorer, Johnny Gerald. Gerald immediately went in and quickly made his way to Floyd. When Collins saw his old pal, he immediately perked up. Johnny Gerald could get him out if anyone could. Over the next six hours, working quickly and carefully, Gerald uncovered Floyd's chest, hips, and thighs. For the first time in four days, he could wiggle his arms and legs. When Gerald was too exhausted to continue, he slithered out of the cave, but finally there was good news and some hope of success. Day five, Skeets had wired out his story and the Associated Press picked it up. As newspapers hit front stoops across the country, the story of Floyd Collins began to spread and the country's focus turned to Kentucky. His professional work done, Skeets wasted no time getting back to work on the rescue. He organized a bucket brigade bringing debris to the surface and went back into the cave. Skeets was amazed to see the progress that had been made. He was so skinny, he squeezed over Floyd's body and began kicking at the rocks trapping his feet. He got Floyd's knees free and had electric lights brought down. Floyd seemed upbeat and hopeful. Laying on top of the trap man and working all the while, Skeets got his interview. When this story came out the next morning, the Floyd Collins rescue was front page news. The story even reached my hometown of Washington, D.C., where the Senate demanded constant updates, as did President Calvin Coolidge. Back in Kentucky, Skeets was trying to use a jack and crowbar to lift the rock that was trapping Floyd's foot, but he couldn't get a good angle. He tried for hours, but it wouldn't budge. When Skeets exited the cave that night, he was greeted by the National Guard. Between the people going in and out of the cave and the electric lights, the cave was warming and tragically as a result, the roof caved in that day. They spent the rest of the day removing this rubble and finally got through again. Collins' childhood friend, Johnny Gerald, went back in with a grease gun, determined to try and lube the rocks and slide Floyd out, 
By the time he made it down into the cave, the roof had collapsed again. In that moment, it became clear they weren't going to get Floyd Collins out the same way he went in. Day 6. Lieutenant General H.H. Derhart assumed command. He had assembled miners and engineers and decided they needed to dig straight down to save Floyd Collins. People had come from all over the state to help, and with picks and shovels, they began to dig. At first, they made good progress, but then they started hitting bigger and bigger boulders, and their pace slowed to a crawl. As day seven of Floyd Collins' ordeal began, they were only progressing six inches an hour. The day was a Friday, and curious people by the thousands arrived to watch the rescue unfold. A carnival atmosphere erupted as vendors brought out food trucks to sell hamburgers to the crowd. Moonshiners were peddling booze, families were picnicking, and buskers arrived to entertain the onlookers while they waited. Church groups arrived as well and prayed for Floyd, and reporters flocked the scene. The story was one of the first national news stories broadcast live on a new thing called radio. Day eight passed much the same, and by day nine, as the crowd went home after the weekend, they had only dug down 25 feet, less than halfway to where Collins was trapped. Finally, on Monday, February 16th, 17 days after Floyd Collins was trapped, and 11 days since anyone had last seen him, the rescue team broke sideways into Sand Cave. Although his survival was unlikely, rescuers still held out hope. A man named Ed Brenner entered the chamber and found Floyd Collins. He shouted back only one word, dead. At that point, any further attempt to retrieve the body was deemed too dangerous, and Floyd Collins was left where he lay. William Skeets Miller went back to Louisville and finished his reporting on the incident. The following year, he would win the Pulitzer Prize for his coverage. Homer Collins, Floyd's brother, went on the vaudeville circuit, telling the story to enthralled crowds around the country. He was intent on raising enough money to retrieve his brother's body. Finally, on April 17th, two and a half months after he went into the cave, the body of Floyd Collins was finally removed and he was buried in the family cemetery. The rock which had trapped his ankle weighed only 27 pounds. I wish I could say that that was the end of the story, but it's not. Two years later, Floyd's father fell on hard times. He sold Crystal Cave to a Dr. Thomas for $10,000. As a gruesome part of the deal, Dr. Thomas exhumed the body of Floyd Collins and put it on display in a glass coffin in the cave. Visitors by the thousands came to see the famed cave explorer's body. The federal government decided to put an end to the craziness and the cave wars and finally designated Mammoth Cave a national park. They bought Crystal Cave in 1961, with the coffin still inside, and closed it to visitors. Finally, in 1989, the decision was made to reinter the body of Floyd Collins in a proper cemetery, and 64 years after his death, he was finally laid to rest. Floyd Collins was an excellent cave guide and explorer. He went into Sand Cave that Friday in January with the hope that he would wind up famous. 
Little did he know that over the next two and a half weeks, he would become famous beyond his wildest imagination. We all need to remember to be careful what we wish for. James Herndon was always sweet, even when he was a kid. He was born the youngest of eight in Scott County, Kentucky in the early 1890s. When he was just a kid, he suffered some sort of an eye injury and his uncle took him to Good Samaritan Hospital in Lexington. The uncle dropped James off and never came back to get him. The hospital staff took to James immediately and the superintendent of Good Samaritan, Miss Lake Johnson, gave him a room there. James grew up in the hospital and earned his keep running errands, delivering mail, and playing the ukulele for the patients. Everyone at the hospital loved James. When he got older, he would train as an orderly, and he would keep that job for over 40 years. At some point, he became head orderly, quite a prominent position for a black man in Lexington in the early 1900s. Eventually, he moved out of his room at the hospital and moved into a house on Prawl Street, a house he furnished with antiques and kept impeccably clean. He loved to entertain and often threw lavish parties that anyone who was anyone in Lexington wanted to attend. Neighborhood children would watch in astonishment as fancy cars and limousines would pull up and white people in evening wear would head into James's house an unusual sight in the predominantly black neighborhood. James would often play the piano for his guests, and he was known to be an excellent cook. No matter how late his parties went though, James was always in church on Sunday morning and attended the Pleasant Green Baptist Church. The fact that James Herndon, as a black man in early 20th century Lexington, was living this way was strange enough, but stranger still was that he was doing it in women's clothing. James loved women's clothes and makeup and jewelry. Sometimes he would just put on a scarf and some nice earrings, but often he would be seen walking up Main Street in full drag. During the day when he was at work, James, as far as I know, was still James. But at night, he transformed into Sweet Evening Breeze, or sometimes Miss Sweets for short. It has been suggested that he chose this name as an homage to Lexington's most notorious madam, Belle Breezing. Belle Breezing had once worked in a brothel in the house Mary Todd grew up in, Mary Todd, who grew up to become Mary Todd Lincoln. Breezing was also possibly the model for Belle Watling in Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind. James claimed to have nursed and attended to Belle Breezing in her later years so it is quite possible that he chose his alter ego's name as a tribute. Regardless, everyone in town seemed to know Sweet Evening Breeze, and everyone seemed to love her. Miss Sweets was quite the local celebrity, and because everyone seemed to know her, her place in society didn't seem unusual. When Good Samaritan had staff basketball games, the doctors and nurses would play, 
and Sweet Evening Breeze would be the cheerleader. In fact, Miss Sweets would often join the University of Kentucky's cheerleading squad on the sidelines for football games. She was said to have quite a few connections with UK football and basketball stars as well. In what was a common, predominantly Southern tradition at the time, Sweet Evening Breeze often took part in something called a womanless wedding. A womanless wedding was essentially a community performance of a mock wedding in which men played all of the roles, from the bride and groom to the flower girls. These womanless weddings played up gender stereotypes and were apparently very entertaining and well attended. Interestingly, they were often staged as fundraisers by churches and schools. Sweet Evening Breeze played the bride in several of these performances and even married University of Kentucky's quarterback in one. One of her most famous photographs is of her draped on a couch in her wedding gown with the quarterback sitting by her side. In what many sources point to as her best performance, though, she was once lowered from the ceiling of the Woodland Auditorium in a beautiful evening gown. She then blew the crowd away by performing something called the Passion Dance of the Bongo Bongos. James Sweet Evening Breeze Herndon was so much more than just a drag queen, though. His house was the center of the gay community in Lexington and was a safe refuge for people to be themselves and talk openly and honestly. Beyond this, James was often trying to help out those less fortunate. He was known to send groceries anonymously to poor families, and during the war, he would often be seen at the train station passing out cakes to soldiers as their trains passed through town. His specialty, apparently, and with noted irony, was fruitcake. He was also apparently instrumental in getting a Lexington law overturned, which had required people to dress according to the gender of their birth. James Sweet Evening Breeze Herndon was one of the most colorful characters in Lexington history. He was a sweet, generous, gentle soul who was always simply and unapologetically himself. Black, gay, out, proud, and dressed in the latest women's fashions, he was still loved by almost everyone in town. The city mourned deeply for him when he passed away in his 90s on February 16, 1983. James Herndon should serve as a role model to us all. Be kind, love everyone, and most importantly, be yourself, no matter what that means or what others might think. But we can also learn a good lesson from the community that embraced him. No matter how someone may appear to you at first glance, it is really what's inside that matters. Get to know people for who they are, as people, not for what box you want to put them in, and you might just be surprised by what you find. In a fitting tribute to James Herndon, Lexington is working to raise money to open an LGBTQ youth homeless shelter. The shelter will aim to serve as a safe haven for homeless queer teens and provide them with a mental and emotional support network as well. The plan is to name the shelter simply Sweet Evening Breeze. There's so many ways your sweet love make this house into a home.
That's going to do it for the podcast this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute to rate and review the show. If you want to learn more about me and this long, slow adventure around the country, be sure you visit my website, www.milestogobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles, the number two, gobeforeisleep.com. Find me on Facebook, on Twitter at Miles to Go Tweet, and on Instagram at Miles to Go Before I Sleep, all using the number two for me and you. Many thanks to our musical guests this week, Wes Mills and Smokehouse, recorded live at the weekly Barn Dance at Renfro Valley Entertainment Center. To find out more and to see who's playing next, visit their website, renfrovalley.com. For music and sound effects, many thanks go to Kevin McLeod at incomtechmusic.com and the wonderful folks over at freesfx.com. Our theme music comes from the legendary Memphis Slim. There's snow up on the mountains, so it's time for me to head south for the winter. Next time, I'll be coming to you from Georgia, the Peach State. Until then, I am your host, Mike Harding, and this is American Anthology. Keep your eyes on the road, your hands on the wheel, and your headlights pointed towards your next adventure. I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and every.